Welcome to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations. As always, we want to thank you for listening to Intergenerational Politics. If you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. And we also have a website, intergenerationalpolitics.com. I'm Victor Shi. I'll be an incoming freshman at UCLA next year, also the co-host of this podcast with Jill. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, the author of The Watergate Girl, based on my experiences during the Watergate trial as the only woman. Uh, I've done a lot of other government work and am now an MSNBC contributor and the co-host of this podcast. So as we talk, we are barely 24 hours um, after Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation to the Supreme Court. Putting aside Amy Coney Barrett's jurisprudence, this is a nomination that has received widespread criticism because Republicans ignored the COVID relief package and instead rushed her confirmation through eight days before voting ends and after over 60 million people have already voted. And Republicans did this after they denied a hearing for President Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court eight months before the 2016 election. Uh, Because of these facts, there are calls to reform not only the Supreme Court, but also the Senate. So to help us unpack some possible reforms under the next administration, we have the perfect guest with us, a former comedian, United States Senator, and member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Al Franken. So first, thanks so much for being here, Al. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks for inviting me. Definitely. So um, let me start by asking you about two of your former colleagues um, who have perhaps gotten the most attention in this uh, hearing process, uh, Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham. Senator Graham has now voted for RBG's replacement despite blocking Merrick Garland in 2016 and promising to abide by that same rule if uh, there was another replacement opportunity in a new election year. Um, You were once a colleague of Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham in the Senate. Is this the same Mitch and Lindsay that you knew? Well, it's the same Mitch. Um, it's kind of the same Lindsay. He was always a pretty cynical politician. But, you know, this he got worse at, at some point. Um, and this is, yeah, you're right. This is completely hypocritical. And, um, yeah, they, when when I was there, when, of course, when Merrick Garland was nominated by the president, by President Obama, and it was February, uh, Scalia had died in February of 2016, and they uh, would not, Mitch McConnell, I think, made the decision, not Lindsay, uh, which was to uh, not take up Merrick Garland, not to meet with him, not to have the committee take him up. And it was all based on this principle, <laughs> uh, not to have, uh, not to take somebody up, a new nominee up during an election year. And of course it, we knew it was cynical then. And it was extremely cynical because they kept citing this thing called the Biden rule. Jill, do you remember that? I remember hearing that, although I didn't ever think it was okay. true. Well, it wasn't, but uh, the the details of it were pretty interesting. This is what it was. Biden in uh, 92, in June of 92, uh, when when the Democrats were in control of the Senate, and uh, let's see, who was in control of the White House in 92? Was it Bush? Yes, it was uh, H.W., right? Yes. And so uh, this was the June... Supreme Court term, it just ended, okay? And so Biden, it did in a speech, 
he said that, well, look, uh, if someone retires, if a conservative retires in order to have himself replaced by a younger conservative, uh, we won't take up someone who is very conservative uh, unless we're consulted. We need to be consulted or unless the president nominates a moderate, a moderate conservative. And that was what he said. But they, uh, the Republicans, uh, McConnell and all the Republicans on the committee and all the Republicans in the Senate at that time said, oh, well, that's the Biden rule, which is you can't take up a nominee for the Supreme Court during election year. Mm-hmm. And that's not what he said at all. That's not what he said at all. And in fact, I brought this up in committee and read from the damn speech. And that didn't matter. You know, they gave me the same uh, reaction they always gave when you completely (laughs) told them the truth that contradicted their baloney. And they would either stare in the middle distance, they would uh, smirk, that would be Cruz, or they would uh, look at their uh, phone. But the fact is, is that they were just being completely hypocritical, completely lying, and they wouldn't take up Merrick Garland. So, and at that point, and I think we've seen this tape over and over again now, Lindsey Graham said, uh, if, if there's a Republican elected in 2016 and there's a vacancy open in 2020, I, we, won't, we won't, and we're in control of the Senate, we will not nominate someone. We will not take up someone. We in the Senate won't take up anybody and keep this tape. And you can use it against me and you'd be right to, right? That's been shown many, many times. And uh, then subsequent to that, he said that at the Atlantic Festival, and that was post-Kavanaugh significantly, because now he said, oh, well, well, you know, I changed, changed that because of Kavanaugh. Well, that was post-Kavanaugh's confirmation. And he said the, the same thing. Use this against me. Hold me to it. Hold me to it. That's what he said there. So this was completely complete complete hypocrisy and but that's nothing new you think it will be used against him i hope so uh you know it's he's in a very close race and i hope he loses (laughs) i i actually heard that you had had some conversation with him that i found insightful and amusing um, I believe it was on the Stephen Colbert show. If I said, if I were a Republican, I'd vote for you. And he said, that's my problem. You know, Lindsay has a sense of humor. Uh, at that time, he called uh, Trump a xenophobic, uh, racist, uh, all that stuff. And, you know, he's a hypocrite. He, in fact, you know, I before COVID hit, I was doing a lot of speaking and the theaters, and I would do a question-answer period, and almost always I would get uh, a question, what happened to Lindsey Graham? Because he had seemed so anti-Trump and now was just kind of a tool. And I said, well, um, this is kind of an open secret in Washington, and I hate to say it, but they had video on him. He is a compulsive shoplifter, and they have a video of him lifting a gravy boat from a pottery barn, and the people of South Carolina are are very religious, and they'll forgive 
almost anything, but they just love their gravy. So on a more serious note, because I like that story, um, let's talk about some of the Senate rules, because in addition to the hypocrisy that you're talking about in pushing through now Justice Barrett, uh, who took her final oath uh, this morning, uh, the Senate had to change its rules to push through her nomination. And I just want to make sure, can, can you explain in simple language what the filibuster is, either what how it came to be and what, what it was supposed to protect? The filibuster was uh, a way to make the Senate the Senate. The, the, the Senate was the saucer that cooled the hot coffee or tea from the cup. And I think this was uh, attributed to either Washington or Jefferson. I think, I can't remember. Um, and maybe it's apocryphal, maybe it isn't. But the point was the House was, uh, they elected every two years, was directly reflected the passion of the people, but the senators were arrested every six years and were more uh, cooled down the hot, boiling uh, coffee or tea. So part of that was that the filibuster was you needed a supermajority of votes to have anything approved. And supposedly the uh, idea there was that you'd have some bipartisanship and uh, uh, just a calmer <laughs> such a, uh, way of doing things. And operate more on consensus than the House, which was just whoever had the majority. And so it's changed the number that the filibuster has, uh, I think it was two-thirds at one point, mm -hmm. and then it got down to 60. But it was basically to do anything, you had to have 60. Uh, so we got uh, the Affordable Care Act only when we had 60. And I was elected... Uh, by 312 votes my first term. And I had a recount and then the legal uh, process that went as long as the Republicans could drag it out. And I didn't get into the Senate until uh, July. And uh, that's when we finally had 60 and we were able to get the Affordable Care Act done. Um, so the filibuster, that's the filibuster. Now, McConnell... Uh, abused the filibuster in a way that no one ever had in history. He filibustered more Obama uh, appointees than any uh, th that had been uh, filibustered in the ex either executive branch, not judicial, but executive branch, uh, more than the sum total of all in the history of the country. And he also did the same on judges especially uh, the uh, D.C. Circuit, which, you know, is the second uh, court. And so in 2014, we had a joint meeting of the Democrats and the Republic of the Senate in the, the old Senate chamber, which is in the House. And there were no mics or no recording. Anyway, uh, and we begged them to do the gang of, of uh, 14, which they had done in 2005 when this parallel situation happened when uh, Bush 
uh, two was president, and uh, the Democrats were in the majority. And they did. They made the Gang of 14, and they had seven Republicans and seven Democrats uh, agree that Democrats would let through uh, all but the most um, radical or right-wing of the judges, and that the other, the seven Republicans agreed to abide by that. So that's all that. We, we begged them to do that in 2014, but they wouldn't do it. So uh, Harry went went nuclear, which meant on judges. This and this was just Harry Reid. Yeah, so we went nuclear on circuit court and uh, district judges. So now you could, and also on other any other nominees from the president, so that we could fill those other roles. I mean, they they were filibustering national defense, national security people and all kinds. Of, they it was really weird what they were doing, frankly. So now we got those people through. And then it still had been 60 to do a Supreme Court justice. And as soon as Gorsuch came up for a vote, they uh, unraveled that. So now it's 50. So that's how Coney Barrett and that's how Kavanaugh both got confirmed under the 50 vote threshold or the majority threshold with the vice president, of course, uh, the tie-breaking vote, but that wasn't needed in, uh, in any of them. So originally, of course, filibuster was meant to protect the minority, to allow the minority to speak and to be heard and to stop what they consider to be terrible things from the majority. Now we don't have that protection uh, for the Supreme Court um, and so we lost the opportunity to block the last two appointments uh, by Donald Trump, or the, actually last all of three. Them. Yeah, the last three. Um, we lost that opportunity because only 51 senators are necessary, uh, <clears throat> and of course that's led to it's actually only 50 because they have the vice president. Right, of course. Um, and it, that's but it how Betsy DeVos votes. got through. Right, it still takes 51 votes is is the point though. And um, in the past, of course, when Harry Reid enacted this nuclear option, uh, it did allow the appointment of democratic judges and justices that were being stalled by um, the Philippines. And, and executive appointees. Yes. You know, ambassadors and, you know, any, uh, any, any role in the, in, in the executive branch. Right, and now it's come back to have the opposite effect, which is we've had a lot of unqualified judges at the lower court level, uh, judges who are rated unqualified by the American Bar Association and other uh, associations. People with no trial experience, no judicial experience have now been confirmed by uh, the Republican majority. Um, and now, of course, we have Amy Coney Barrett, who has been confirmed. Do you think at this point that the filibuster should be eliminated completely or should it be brought back? What will happen if Biden is elected and if the Democrats control the Senate? Could Republicans use filibuster now to prevent legislation? Um, yeah. How do you view of this? What, what do you think should happen in Congress? 
Well, this is all Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell, before Obama became president, told his caucus, we're going to do everything we can stop this president from having any achievements. And our number one goal is to make sure that he's a one-term president. And so they used the filibuster to do that do as much as they could. And so he abused it in a way that was never intended. And that's why we went nuclear in 14 on judges. But, you know, if, if Biden wins and uh, he's president and they have 49 or 50 and we have the vice presidential break, break the tie, uh, McConnell will filibuster everything. There'll be nothing getting done. So, of course, we're going to have to do that. We're going to have to get rid of the filibuster. So uh, going back to the uh, confirmation of Justice Barrett, were there any other procedural tactics since there was no filibuster available? Was there any other way that Democrats could have blocked the confirmation? No. No, we did not have the tools to do that. There was nothing we could have. We could have made him maybe pay a bigger price for it by asking some different kinds of questions there. I think that um, we could have been a little bit more aggressive in a couple places and make her pay a little bit of a price. But uh, there was nothing we could do procedurally to stop. I mean, they did a good thing uh, by making it clear to the American people that what was at stake was the ACA. And row, but like the the Republicans were so cynical during this, they'd ask her like, um, "Did the president talk to you about overturning Roe?" And she'd go, "No." Well, she was on the short list from the Federalist Society. <laughs> Being on the short list from the Federalist Society means you're for undoing Roe, and you're for undoing the ACA. And we know what that means. And so it could have been someone could have asked her like. Have you talked to anyone from the Federalist Society about Roe? Do they know how you stand on Roe? Are they allowed to talk to the president? And if the president uh, did ask you to overturn Roe v. Wade, could you have said something like, Mr. President, it would be inappropriate for me to answer that, but may I suggest you look at who sent me? (laughs) Well, I think that your former colleague from Minnesota, Senator Klobuchar, really captured that by saying the tracks are there. You don't have to have it said. You can see them in the snow. Um, Yeah, she was just... talking about deer hunting up in northern Minnesota. Exactly. And she also asked a great question, which was, um, do you believe that voter intimidation is criminal? <laughs> and she said, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and then Amy had the statute and read it to her. And she went, oh, oh. I, I texted Amy and said uh, that night, I said, great question. I want you to follow up tomorrow and say, I'm sorry I started w- with such a difficult question yesterday. <laughs> so I'll make it a little easier. Um, how about Grand Theft Auto? <laughs> I think oh, that's only you had been there to ask that uh, question. Oh my yeah, gosh. Yeah. Are there any reforms that you think would help? Uh, because I'm worried about Victor's generation, who has 
seen a lot of gridlock. Um, you know, anyone alive during the Obama administration saw exactly what you've described, which was Mitch McConnell stopping everything cold. And if if Biden wins and if the Democrats take the Senate, I could see uh, Republicans using the same tactics. And so I'm just worried about gridlock happening again. And, well, that, and then, that's why course, I said we're going to have to get rid of the filibuster because McConnell will do exactly what he did in, in starting in 09. That he filibustered anything, anything. He just wanted to stop. And we had 60, thank goodness. Yeah. Uh, so we could get the ACA passed. And then we had to go through reconciliation after Scott Brown, as you remember, was elected. And we had 59. So he had to use a procedure called reconciliation. And the House had to pass a bill. And then we had to do reconciliation to get the House bill through. But, um, you know, we could try to do a lot of bills through reconciliation, which has certain rules, has budgetary rules, et cetera. But look, he's going to just, uh, McConnell will do everything he can to make Biden fail. And we can't give them that tool. And it really has, he destroyed it. There's other ways to do it to make people, you know, one of the things that happens is it's set up so that people can object and stop things. And then you have to put in the procedure to get the votes and it takes time. And the whole point is to slow things down. You can change the threshold. You can make them have 45 votes to stop anything and make them show up and literally make them have quorum calls and make them sleep there. And believe me, Chuck Grassley isn't going to want to sleep there in a cot in the Capitol. So there are things you can do short of getting rid of the filibuster to effectively get rid of the filibuster by making it uh, complete. I remember when I first got there, we were going to have a vote on the fil filibuster vote on a Monday. And I was saying uh, we we're going Thursday evening to leave for the weekend. So I said to a Republican colleague of mine, I'll see you on Monday. He said, oh, I don't have to be here on Monday. It's a filibuster vote. You need the 60. We don't need it. We don't need any. So at that time, I said, why don't we just make it? You have to have 40 to stop it. That way, 40 of you guys got to show up. And we don't have to show up. <laughs> and we can, we can, raise, you know, we can do uh, raise campaign funds on Mondays and you have to show up and vote the filibuster or something. So there's other ways to do this. There actually are. And just make them have to show up. You know, there's, there's, there's probably some ways around this. So we focus a lot about the Senate reforms that you know can be explored, but let's turn to some of the reforms that we can do to the Supreme Court. Um, uh, you know, Jill's Twitter account, um, she has a hashtag now called uh, Say This Not That, which basically says that we should change court packing to court balancing. But um, the court packing kind of idea is a popular solution among my generation. So you know, many defend the proposal since, in large part, Republicans have packed the court with their judges. Um, so it seems fitting that Democrats also do the same. So first, is court packing the correct solution um, as we head into the next administration to explore that option? Oh, I think we certainly have to keep it on the table. 
you know, if I were Biden, uh, uh, Vice President Biden, and he was asked this, of course, and he said he's going to do a commission, a bipartisan commission. I might have said something a little different. I might have said, look, I'm going to be president for four years. Um, if Coney Barrett, the, the purpose of her, which I, is what I think it is, which is to overturn Roe or make it impossible for women in certain states to get those services. And if it's to overturn the ACA, well, then, yeah, gee whiz, we're going to have to do that. And the way to balance, as Jill might say, the court is to say, you guys stole two, which they did by denying Merrick Garland on the principle that it was an election year and then taking up the Coney Barrett. And she, by the way, she's the biggest hypocrite of all. Because right after Scalia died, she was interviewed by CBS Radio, I think it was, but it was CBS. I've seen this interview, so it might have been TV. And she said, oh, no, it's an election year. And when uh, Justice Kennedy was sworn in in an election year, but it was taken up in November, and he was succeeding Justice Powell, who was a moderate conservative, so it's a lateral replacement. And, uh, of course, Bork had been... Uh, gone through that process. Powell's announces retirement in June the year before, and then the, the Bork thing took time, and then this guy Ginsburg, remember Jilly smoked yes. pot and had to withdraw. <laughs> so then it was November when Kennedy was nominated, not the election year. And yes, he was sworn in in February, but it's very different because it's a lateral move. Blah 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 blah, and then boom. And then she said, well, I wasn't really uh, making that argument. I was just saying that's an argument that exists. <laughs> and again, I heard it the, too. I heard it. Yeah. Really yeah. make arguments that are just, that, that seem like arguments for something. But then you can just say later, no, 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 no. I, I, I was just raising it as a hypothetical argument. Is that your position on what you said? Come on. Geez. Um, so where was I? <laughs> we were talking about uh, on, uh, on the, court. the court. Yeah. They stole two. Yeah. Merrick mm -hmm. Garland, who should be on the court. And by the way, Merrick Garland had been chief, chief judge in the DC circuit and had served there for 19 years and had a reputation as a moderate progressive and as a consensus building chief judge. And Orrin Hatch had talked to the president about him, which is consulting. And that's exactly what Biden said, which is if you consult with us and appoint a moderate, we're fine. Yeah, so, and, and not only was he a moderate. That's a steal, and then this one's a steal because she was she was uh, sworn in eight days before the election. That's that's just that. And then you know what? They need to pay a price for that. So so uh, the people of South Carolina should see this hypocrisy, this uh, this uh, perfidy for what it is. 
and associate of the voters of Texas and North Carolina and Iowa and Maine. Was she the one who got the permission to vote again? I don't know who it was. Uh, and the voters of Colorado and the voters of Mississippi and of Georgia and the voters of Montana and Arizona should see this for what it is and vote for Democrats so the Democrats control the Senate. Okay, so I'm non-political, so I'm, I'm just listening to what you're saying, but let's look at court reform again. Aside from rebalancing by adding some seats to it. Uh, so that's how you're that, nonpartisan because you change packing to balancing. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not, I'm not saying nonpartisan. That's great. I'm not saying how to vote. That. I'm just saying, here are some things that you should consider in voting. And, and one of them is this, this <laughs> idea of what happened to the court. And, and I should point out that even if you add two seats to rebalance it and to take, um, away the, the stolen seats, it would still be a conservative majority. That's why it's four seats. Exactly. So, um, but also there are a couple of other reforms that have been suggested that I'd love to hear you, uh, uh, you know, what your opinion is. One of them is term limits. Now, obviously that won't affect anyone who's currently on the court, but it would going forward. Do you think term limits is a good thing for justices of the Supreme Court? Well, that would be a long-range solution. Yeah. But I think what the proposal is, is that uh, they're 18-year terms and that uh, every president gets, um, what is it, two? Yeah. Uh, two appointments. There's a couple things that are a little hinky about that. First of all, I don't know how you dovetail that with the lifetime right. appointments to the Supreme Court. You're going to be a lifetime federal judge and just serve on the Supreme Court for 18 years and then move down to a circuit court, right? I guess you but, could, yeah. Yeah, so they could still be a lifetime appointment. Um, so I'm not sure when this would start. <laughs> and But if it did, I don't, I kind of like that. But then the other hink, hinky part of this is they could still stop some president from doing his term is two every every term so you could still stop someone just like merrick garland was yeah. stopped and just like they threatened to do in case hillary was elected right. and they and, kept the senate they said course, they were going to do that they said she, no, no she doesn't get anybody and if there were any deaths during um a term then you a president would have more than two but um, and, and another suggestion that um, I've read about is that Congress could start adding a poison pill to legislation so that if the court were to, for example, as they did during the New Deal, where they were just throwing out all the reform legislation, that they would have to think twice because if they threw out the bill, they would have to throw out something that they would find very attractive that was linked to it and that wasn't severable. Uh, do you think that has any practical solution? Uh, because we are, no matter what happens with reform, the 6-3 conservative majority are fairly young judges and I would predict they will uh, be in power for a long, long time. I, I have not heard that. Um, I've never 
I'd have to really think about it and learn more about it to consider it. Uh, the thing that does concern me is if you look at these six uh, conservatives there, where do they come down on the Chevron doctrine, for example? I mean, are, are, do they want to return to Lochner? Do they want to go back to the, before the New Deal? which is basically the, get rid of the administrative state. And that is very dangerous. And, you know, I was watching the Kavanaugh hearings, and I think it was Ben Sass brought up, uh, you know, getting rid of, the, he was talking in those terms, getting rid of the administrative state. And he was saying, like, you know, we don't legislate enough. Uh, like the Affordable Care Act, uh, Congress should have worked hard and written the regulations or something. That's insane. <laughs> that was like a that was like a two thousand page bill as it was, and HHS had to do the regs, and it took them two years to do the regs. No, it took them four years, basically, to implement them. I mean, that's just crazy. Yeah, and speaking of Ben Sass, I, I thought when I was watching the Amy Coney Barrett testimony and um, when he mentioned he wanted to give us a civics lesson, I um, pressed. Oh my time. god, <laughs> that was a, a low moment. Um, that was so condescending to everybody and so dishonest. Look, they want the Supreme Court to legislate. They want the Supreme Court to overturn the ACA. That's legislating. What, th that was so sickening to see SAS do that. It, it was yeah. insulting to everybody watching mm -hmm. who knew anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Exactly. I, I, I could I, I could sense my AP government teacher. Um, <laughs> I could sense his anger after Ben Sass said that it was. Well, you, um, could you sense mine? Yeah, that too. Um, so let's end perhaps on a better note. And, you know, this is definitely a. Well, that's a good note. Being mad at Sass. <laughs> <laughs> good point. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this is these are really um, trying times. There's so much polarization. We have, uh, you know, a rock solid conservative court now. So during these times, uh, what gives you hope? Well, uh... What gives me hope is that I think most Americans understand that this experiment, if that's what you want to call it, for four years has been a terrible, terrible mistake. But we will see in a few days, won't we? And they'll do everything they can to suppress votes. That's what they do. And, you know, the only way this guy doesn't steal the election is if he can't. So that means we have to all turn out. Uh, but he's going to try stuff. And there's a lot of tools there that he can use and that we have to be eyes wide open and understand what he's trying to do. Now, my hope is that the vote will be overwhelming enough that, that he has no opportunity to do that. But there are a lot of things that I don't put past him. There's going to be including voter intimidation, which uh, justice now, Coney Barrett, is a crime. And so there'll be 
that on election night. Uh, there will be uh, a lot of mail-in votes that aren't counted in states like Michigan and Pennsylvania, which don't start counting them till election day. So there is every possibility that he'll declare victory in states that haven't counted the mail-in votes, which will be predominantly Democratic. And there'll be, uh, there could be violence. The Boogaloo Boys will put on an Antifa t-shirts and create enough uh, violence to, this. they did this in Minneapolis, so that the president can use the Insurrection Act and put out the, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that we need to be wary of and have our, be alert to. So was that the optimism you wanted? <laughs> Not exactly. Not exactly. Okay. But well, uh, let me then say this. Life is great, and we should all enjoy it when we can. I would say this. And, and I do think that Joe Biden is not FDR. He's Joe Biden, which is a good thing. Yeah. And he is an empathetic person, and he's a healing person, I believe. So this could go, this could go well. <laughs> I, I think I have hope in the American people. I have hope that enough people will turn out to vote that it won't matter that there may be some corruption in counting ballots because there will be so many that it won't matter. And I really well, do see that kind of enthusiasm. Um, just as I drive past polling places now, I can see uh, it's snowed in Chicago. I'm in Chicago yeah, and it was snowed yeah. yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there were still lines of people voting. It didn't matter. Um, so I, I yeah. think I think that it looks good for turnout. And I think for young people too. I think, I think there will be I think younger a lot of turnout, is, but yeah. there'll also I mean I've talked to a lot of people who know the electorate, including David Axelrod, mm -hmm. who is in there in Chicago. And there's concern that there are a lot of um, you know working class white men who didn't vote uh, in 16, who they're working to get out. And you see where he's campaigning and he wants to turn out that he's, he's, he's not trying to reach across at all. He's just trying to get the turnout of his people and that combined with suppression and intimidation and the, imbalance of the way the electoral college works this is going to be you know everybody watching this listening to this not only needs to vote themselves but encourage everybody they know to vote and get on the phones between now and yeah. tuesday and through tuesday get people out right that's sure. the hopeful note i was looking yes for sure there it election is. day cannot come soon enough um we hope for the best well but i hope it's over after the day after election day, but I don't right, necessarily right. think it necessarily will be. Yeah. I'm, I'm speaking in Minnesota the week after the election. I'm hoping, by, at, and this is at the University of Minnesota Law School, uh, Walter Mondale and I do a uh, program on Watergate, and I'm hoping there'll be a verdict by then. But 
it may not be. It may take a long time and wow. that's okay. That's fair and just. It means we're counting every ballot and that's what needs to happen. Yeah, that doesn't necessarily mean we're counting every ballot, but that is is what should happen. And please say hi to Fritz for me. Would you I certainly feel? will. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much, Al, for being here. This was a wonderful discussion. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Intergenerational Politics. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. Thanks so much. See you in our next episode.